If you would, take your Bibles with me and open them to the Gospel of Luke, the 11th chapter. Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. I do just want to stress before we get in to the sermon this morning, uh, how significant of a privilege it is that we get to sing songs like this, like we sang this morning, get to attribute praise and glory to our God. Uh, if I could leave one thing uh, on, the, on the world, in the world, it would be uh, don't underestimate the high value, highest value that Christians have in worshiping God. I think, personally, it is the highest peak and culmination of our entire faith. And so we don't take it lightly and we rejoice in being able to do it. But we come to an interesting text this morning in Luke 11. One that is probably the clearest example of backwards thinking. It is a text where we will be, I think, shocked by what we experience. And yet it's also a text that will well up within our hearts this desire to worship the Lord because of what we see. It is perhaps not the most, but certainly one of the most offensive texts in all of Scripture. It is one of the most disgusting texts in all of Scripture. And yet simultaneously, it can be one of the most encouraging texts in all of Scripture. We would call it offensive, and yet we will find reason to celebrate in here. We would call it one of the worst interactions that Jesus has in his life, and yet there's reason for rejoicing in this text. We would call it the absolute worst view of God. And yet here in this passage, we find one of the most clearest views of God. We would call it the worst mistake that a human being could ever make concerning God. And yet at the same time, it is a clear picture of the truth of who God really is. We would call it this morning the great mistake because that's what is being made here. The greatest of mistakes. It's a divine mistake, a, a mistake of eternal consequence. And even as I was thinking through the passage this morning and, and uh, last night, I, I thought the word mistake may be too soft of a word. Because it doesn't necessarily convey the seriousness of the crime that's taking place in Luke 11, verse 14 through verse 23. Because what we find here is not an innocent act, but we discover an atrocious and deliberate accusation levied against Christ. Today, we come to the passage of Scripture where Jesus is being accused of being and being used by demons. In fact, they say he's being used by the prince of demons. And it's more, uh, we, we, get, we don't just stop there where Christ himself is being accused of being demonic, but we also discover by Jesus' own connection that the work, the, the work of God and the work of the kingdom of God here in this passage is being mistaken for the work of Satan. It's a text of Scripture where the people involved cannot distinguish between the kingdom of God 
and the household of the devil. Now before in the Gospels, and it will happen again in the Gospels, Christ has been accused of being demon-possessed, having demons occupy him. But here, it's a little bit more serious, a little bit more specific. He's being accused of not just demon possession, but getting his very source of his power from demonic influence. They're calling his power pure evil power. What we find in Luke 11 this morning, it is disgusting because it is an assault and an affront to the nature and character of God. He who is all holy and all good and all loving and and forgiving is here going to be described as pure darkness and wickedness. And I would say again, this is not just a mistake. It's not an innocent confusion. It's an inability to distinguish between the highest good and the worst kind of evil. And it's a blatant failure at knowing who God is by those who claim to know God best. In short, what we discover in this text in Luke 11, church, is nothing short of a tragedy that still takes place today. Let us us be humbled for a moment here because here are those who claim in their mind, with their mouth, who believe in their heart that they are the men of God, the people of God who know God best. And yet when confronted with Christ, they have the complete inability to distinguish between Jesus and the work of the enemy. They're, They're totally and completely blinded to the truth, and to reality. And that's a fearful place to be in. It's a fearful place to not know God well enough or to not know God in truth and confuse Him and mix Him up with the very opposite of God. Ungodliness, wicked, evilness, Satan. And yet, many even today can stand in the footprints And in the place of these who level the accusations against Christ. Many today can think they know God. And yet would ascribe God to the work of Satan. That's the world we live in, isn't it? That world, our world that we live in has that problem today. Distinguishing between right and wrong and good and evil. And this text reminds us this morning that as God's people, we ought to have Firmly placed in our mind the matters of right and wrong, good and evil, God and the enemy. And we ought to be clearly displaying such truths unashamedly. Now Luke is recording this text this morning along with Matthew and Mark. And his main purpose in doing it, as we'll see, is to show the seriousness of the accusations against the Lord. But then also to bring out more importantly, the Lord's response to these accusations. So look with me in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Luke writes and reports and says, Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. 
When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The first thing Luke reports in this passage is the miracle Jesus performs. It's one verse, verse 14. And it's a supernatural act that is highly spiritual in nature. It really is uh, an instance where the presence of good and the presence of evil, the power and work and kingdom of God and the power and work and kingdom of Satan come together and confront one another. And what's significant about Luke's report here in verse 14 is that nobody disputes the events that take place. Nobody uh, seeks to disprove the authenticity of Christ performing this miracle and casting out this demon. In fact, it's all agreed upon that the demon loses the confrontation and that Jesus has literally just performed an exorcism. That's not up for debate. They're not denying the fact that Christ performed this miracle. They're not denying the fact that power had come from Him and Him alone. They're they're instead questioning His motives. And they're instead questioning his source of power. And by implication, they're questioning his very nature and his very existence. The quality of the exorcism is unquestioned. Because the mute man speaks and they all see it. It's irrefutable proof that the demon has been cast out of this man. So nobody has a problem with that. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 14, it actually says the people marveled. They know something significant has just happened. They're not denying the events that occurred. They understand power has just come from Christ, that this man has been liberated and freed. And what's significant about that is not also just that they're accepting of the miracle they're not denying it and that that's not the problem but even more so luke mostly passes over the miracle he 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 shares it as a minor point to the conversation it's a minor point in the passage yeah something supernatural has happened yes christ has exhibited what we know to be divine power power over even demonic spirits more power and authority than anybody present possessed in and of themselves and yet it's a minor point in the passage that tells us the seriousness of the accusations that are brought to christ 
Luke is saying these accusations are so much more important than even a miracle performed by Christ in this moment. The context shows us how serious the situation is. And that's the second thing we want to look at in this text. The accusation in verse 15 and 16. And this is where the most offensive act comes from. Luke describes these witnesses in verse 15 in very broad, general, unidentifying terms. He just says some of them. Matthew and Mark both describe these witnesses as Pharisees and scribes. So we know them to be the religious leaders. That's why we can say those who claim to be the closest to God and know the most about God have actually been the ones who got it all wrong here. So he gives us this unidentifying term and he says these are the ones who express their complete unbelief in two ways about Christ. Let's take the minor first and then move to the major. Verse 16 is the more minor point. Some of them still seeking to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So in their minds what happens in verse 14 does not qualify as a sign from heaven. An exorcism, a show of what we would call divine power, isn't necessarily the working of God. Their desire to continue to test Christ and their desire for another sign only reveals their complete unbelief in Jesus and in His work that He's performing right in front of their eyes. It also reveals, again, their inability to recognize the difference between heaven's work And Satan's work. People often tell me. I would probably believe if I saw God or saw him work. Maybe if he gave me some sign. And over and over and over again, Christ is giving signs and people are asking for more signs. What we learn is that works like this, even when witnessed, do not produce genuine faith in everybody. These people get to see firsthand divinity at work get to see the kingdom of God coming among them, and they have no ability and no idea that it has just taken place. Their desire for another sign is an expression of unbelief. The major factor in this passage is in verse 15. When these people go beyond simple unbelief and they go beyond failure to recognize God's kingdom at work, they go to blatantly evil accusations. And so they attribute Jesus' spiritual, supernatural power, divine power to the work of demons. Verse 15, he cast out demons by demons. It's ironic for those of us who know Christ, isn't it? Because here they're, they're unknowingly attributing darkness to the Lord of light. The very definition and mark of all that is good, they call wicked and influenced by demons, demonic. They are saying Jesus is nothing short of a vessel for evil, a tool in the hand of the enemy. That's the serious accusation being leveled against the Lord who has come to destroy evil. They use the name Beelzebul. We don't know where that name comes from. The origination is unclear. 
we're not even sure what the meaning of it is. Most people think it's a conglomeration of, of terms meant to convey an inferior pagan god or an evil spirit. But we do know from the context the seriousness of the name because they give the title the Prince of Demons. And that title significant because what they're saying in, in uh, saying that Christ is possessed and used by the Prince of Demons is they're acknowledging supreme power in Christ. Or, or a supreme power in Christ. But they're saying it must be a supreme power of demons. That he has to submit to demonic influence. And he's being used for demonic purposes. And, and he's going to be filled with wickedness to be used by them. They know Christ has power. But they think he has to have demon power. And submit to demonic power. But it doesn't just stop again with saying that Christ is overcome by demonic influences here. By association, they're saying the kingdom of God must be overcome by demonic influences. It's nothing short than an attack on all that is righteous, all that is good, all that is godly, all that is holy. Because James Edwards makes it very clear, he observes in his commentary on this verse, he says, Jesus' exorcisms are not merely signs of the presence of God's kingdom. They're concrete realities of it. Jesus' expulsion of demons means the kingdom of God is a present reality. The kingdom of God has come through Christ. He and his works have the exclusive right of the inbreaking of God's kingdom into the world to conquer demonic influences. And yet these people would look at him and say, nope, that's not godly, that's demonic. That's why Christ would say in verse 20, if I am doing the work of God, then the kingdom of God is here. And yet these people can say, that's not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of Satan. It's an evil thought. It's a cosmic, seriously cosmic accusation here. The Lord of glory, the good creator, the one with all power, who is almighty and majestic and controls every minute detail of everything in creation, is being accused of supreme wickedness. Supreme evil. That for us, church, should create this angry reflex in our hearts. When our God is accused of wickedness, we rise up in defense. Now Christ, God does not need our defense, but we know who God is, right? We know our Creator. We know the glory of our Lord. We know the grace that He's shown us and the goodness that He lavishes upon us all the time, day in and day out. And then somebody would rise up and say, that's not good, that's wicked. We bristle at such a notion. This passage is disgusting. It is deplorable. It is offensive. And it is hostile to all that is godly. And yet... That's the world we live in. That's the, the time we exist in. And how dangerous of a place is it to be when you can no longer recognize what God says is good and what 
Satan says is good. You can no longer distinguish between what God says is right and what God says is wrong. It's a dangerous and a dark place to be. And church, I'll be honest, if we do not study our scriptures and if we do not know our God, we can fall in the same place. When God becomes a figment of our imagination and we think we can take the liberty to define him and describe him as we see fit and we want to fit him into our box, eventually we'll be the Pharisees saying that's not the kingdom of God, that's the kingdom of Satan. And oh, how dangerous of a place it is to be. Church, we are living in a time and we are surrounded by a world that says God is wrong, God is unjust, God is unfair, God is bad, God doesn't know best. What God declares to be wicked, the world is embracing as good. And what God says is wrong, the world will always embrace as right. What God says is evil, the world will worship as God. And God will be the one regarded as evil. Don't get your influence and your advice from the world. They can't distinguish between good and bad. Righteousness and unrighteousness. Well, that's the same offense. The, the, what we experience and see in our world today. The inability between, to, to distinguish between the things of God and the, the things of wickedness. That's the same offense we find in this text today. And I don't. I want to get to the point where we're pointing the finger at the world here. I also want us to be humbled. We're prone to that. In fact, let me take it a little bit more specific and further. We do that every time we choose sin. Every time we choose unrighteousness. Every time we choose the world. Every time we choose ungodliness. We are in essence saying the things that the world says are better than what you say, God. Your kingdom doesn't know best. Your standard isn't satisfying. You don't know what real pleasure is. And we are found to be in the same boat. Unable to distinguish the things of God from the things of the world. Mixing up the work of God and the work of the devil. These people do not know the, the characters of the kingdom of God nor the principles of the kingdom of God. And I fear... If we don't know God and pursue Him diligently, we could be there as well. It's nothing short of Romans 1, trading the truth about God for a lie. And that is what is taking place every time we choose to follow our flesh instead of the standard of God. It is disgusting. It is deplorable. It is why we tell you to avoid with all diligence, the world and the ways of the world. It's why we tell you to renounce sin and ungodliness because it is doing the very same thing. Well, the third thing we find in this passage is the bulk of the passage. Verses 17 through verse 23. Divine justice does not let this accusation go unanswered. So we look at the Lord's defense. We've seen the miracle. We've seen the accusations. Now we can look at the defense that Christ renders to these people. He offers them a master class in clarity. And he uses what we'll call if clauses. Three different if clauses. Verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. And he's using these if clauses to convey an adequate sound defense to them. The first one, he uses a defense by logic. 
verse 17 and 18, Christ knows their thoughts. So maybe they were saying them to themselves or thinking them to themselves. They're not saying these accusations to Christ, but he knows their thoughts and he's not just going to let these things slip by. Granted, Christ knew the thoughts of man. John 2 tells us that he knows what's in the heart of man. A lot of things, a lot of wicked thoughts he let pass by, didn't address every one of them. And then yet there are some that cannot go unaddressed. And when you begin to deny the nature and character of God and assault the kingdom of God, that's not something God will let go unaddressed. So knowing their thoughts, he speaks to them. And he uses logic in verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. We know that. We've seen that. We experience that. In fact, Jesus shares it as its basic knowledge. If there's infighting, if there's disunity, an organization, a kingdom, a household won't stand. Come on, verse 18. If Satan's divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? That's what you're saying. For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Logic tells us that's not true. Logic tells us that can't happen. I think when Jesus issues such a basic logical explanation and defense of his position, it reveals something about the accusers. It reveals that they're more emotional and biased than they are intelligent. And that's often the case with those who want to disrupt or disgrace Christ. They trade wisdom and understanding for false accusations, emotional slurs, and hatred. These guys aren't thinking clearly. They are tunnel-focused on Christ. And all they can see and think about is, I hate Jesus. What do I need to do to discredit him? I can't deny the miracle he's performed. I have to think of something else to discredit him. So all knowledge, all intellect, all logic goes out the window. Anything to deny Jesus. Hatred is what motivates these people in the text. Christ says that doesn't even make common sense. The second defense he issues to them is a defense of experience. Verse 19. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your sons cast them out? Now exorcisms in the time were rare. We don't have a whole lot of recordings, uh, extra biblical of exorcisms being performed in this time. Most of them are recorded in the Gospels. Nonetheless, Jews had in their religious system and their religious construction there, uh, exorcists, people devoted just to that task. And occasionally they would go and perform exorcisms. And so they acknowledge that those things need to happen. Those things did happen. Some people had the ability by God's grace to do those things. Jesus is showing and proving their disparity in their thinking, saying, if your sons cast out demons, they must also do that by Beelzebub, right? If your sons, your people, are the ones who are overcoming Satan, are they doing it by the power of Satan or by the power of God? If you're accusing me of working in demonic influence, are you accusing them of working in demonic influence? Well, they would be quick to say no. Those perform exorcisms by the power of God. And Christ wants to know what's the difference. 
What is the difference here? Why am I being accused of uh, working under demonic influence and yet your people, your exorcists, your sons, you would say, work under the power of God? You're quick to claim their righteousness and my unrighteousness. I think the answer is very clear. Jesus is saying you need to be consistent. If you're going to claim your sons perform exorcisms by the power of God, then I perform exorcisms by the power of God. They're either performed by one power or another. Pick. He's caught them in a corner. Because they're not going to deny their own people. That's why he says at the end of verse 19, therefore they're going to be your judges. Because they're going to rise up quick and say, no, we perform exorcisms by the power of God. And Jesus would say, then all exorcisms must be performed by the power of God. So he exposes their disparity of thinking. Well, thirdly, verse 20 is the most powerful point that Christ makes. It's the meat of his defense. It is defense by power. It is the most significant clarification he makes. And it is where we find our encouragement in the passage. It's where we find the clearest truth presented about God and following God in the passage. It's why we can say this is a disgusting text and yet an encouraging text. A confused text and yet one that shows such clear pictures of who Jesus is. Verse 19, he says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase, finger of God, occurs another time in Scripture. It occurs in Egypt in the book of Exodus. When Moses and Aaron are before Pharaoh and they're performing some of the signs, some of the plagues of God and the signs to confirm their uh, messengers of God. And the Egyptian magicians perform two of the same signs. And on the third sign of Moses and Aaron, they can't replicate it. And they say to Pharaoh of Egypt, this must be the finger of God. Christ unmistakably uses the same language here. Just as Moses and Aaron were sent to deliver Israel from the bondage and captivity of Egypt, Christ has come to set people free from the bondage and captivity of Satan. The finger of God is at work here also in deliverance. And Christ says, if it is the finger of God, then God's kingdom is here. And he's here in me. That's major for those who are listening. Because that means you have misidentified the kingdom of God. Well, the way Jesus constructs this argument, that's the only plausible answer left. And it's a very condemning answer, isn't it? Okay, logic says it's not demonic powers casting out demonic powers. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Experience says... It's got to be the power of God performing exorcisms. That's what we've maintained our whole lives. That's what we maintain with our exorcists. So the only other option is it's the finger of God working here. And if it's the finger of God, and, and if the power of God has come and the kingdom of God has come through Christ, then we have misidentified the kingdom of God. We are guilty and we are in trouble. Now, verse 21 and verse 22 is Jesus' explanation of why they should believe that it is the kingdom of God. He uses an example. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks, he's overcome and plundered. 
J.C. Ryle says, make no mistake about these verses. Our Lord calls our enemy a strong man. So you want to stand up and fight against the enemy, you need to know he is a strong man and he is fully armed. But there is one stronger. And all the armor of the strong man does not stand against the one who is stronger. Christ overcomes Satan. That's the point. Jesus will overcome and plunder the enemy and all of his strength and all of his might and all of his armor and all of his tactics are no match for Jesus. That's the clear point. That's the clear lesson Christ is trying to explain to these people. It's not that I cast out demons by demons. It's that I am so much stronger than demons. I'm the stronger one. And I overcome And I divide the spoils. And I plunder the enemy. He's already said in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's no match for me. I'm superior. I'm supreme. I'm stronger. And I'm here to levy the greatest attack against him he will ever know. Again, James Edwards said the incarnation of Christ is nothing short of an assault against the fully armed strong man. It's a carefully planned offensive to subdue this hostile power and restore humanity to its intended image and design of its creator. Jesus makes it clear the power of Satan and the power of God are unequivocally incompatible. And I rise up and overcome him. I rise up and dominate. I am the stronger man and I'm sent to set the captives that he has free. There's the encouragement, church. We know when Christ casts out demons, he he casts out demons by his own power, his own ability, because he is stronger And those who are possessed by the strong man will be freed by the stronger one. So we can have abundant clarity in this text. While the Pharisees and scribes are confused about who Jesus is, we get a beautiful picture of who he is in verses 21 and 22. He's the strongest who overcomes evil, who declares victory, who reigns forever, who has no match against him. We cling to that Jesus. Then he makes perhaps the most forceful statement of the whole passage in verse 23. He draws a very hard and deliberate line in the, st- in the sand. He says, you are either with me or against me. Now what a claim, right? That's, an, that's a claim of authority and supremacy. You got me wrong. You've got the kingdom of God wrong. The only plausible answer is that I'm actually the stronger one. That I have more power. And now you have to choose. Are you with me or against me? Those who are with me, they can gather with me. But if you do not gather with me, you will be scattered. You have two options. And you notice... He makes no mistake about them. They revolve around me. You have two options and they both deal with me. 
You are either with me with all my strength, with all my might, with all my protection, or you are against me with all my wrath, with all my fury, with all my power. And it's not just that he's bringing these people to understand the two options. He's saying, pick. Choose. Christ makes it very clear here in this text. There is no such thing as neutrality with Christ. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There is no non-committal feelings. He's the one who is the strong man. He gets to to determine the rules. He gets to define faith and those who follow him. And he says, those who follow me are all in or all out. There is no middle ground. So you can go the way of the world and call what God says is wicked good. Or you can go the way of Christ and submit to what God says and say, even if I don't understand it, your way, your way alone. Jesus leaves no room for noncommittal people. He says, you have to choose the power of Satan or the power of God. And by the way, the strong man, stronger man will always win. These people who mistook Jesus as a pawn of demonic influence, they can correct themselves. They can hear Christ's teaching and turn. You and I can hear Christ's teaching and turn. Many of us would fit in maybe a more subtle fashion into this text. We may not say Jesus is demonically influenced, but we might say, I don't know that he knows best. I don't know that he's real. I don't know that he has all power. I don't know that he's the only way to salvation. I don't know this or I don't know that. Maybe, maybe it's true. Well, just like these people, we can correct our understanding of Christ. But we have to understand the warning issued. It's all me or all out. All Jesus or nothing. Church, if you get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong. If you fail with Christ, you fail in every regard. If you get Jesus wrong, you get eternity wrong. Look at this text and look what happens when someone gets him wrong. Christ makes it clear who he is. I am the kingdom of God present. I am the power of God, the finger of God. I am the stronger man. And you have a choice to make with me. Or against me. I think some of us need to repent. Of our hearts being neutral. Or non-committal towards Christ. There are days in life. That we exist and walk. And claim Christianity. But in reality. We're very neutral towards the things of God. Some of us need to profess faith in Jesus. Some of us are brought to this choice. Right now. And our eternity depends on it. Are you with Christ or against Christ? You either have the love of God or the wrath of God and you have a choice to make. And that choice can be made today. I would leave us with this. Let us not be the people who get Christ wrong. Let us pursue Him with all diligence. That's why we walk through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse, week after week after week after week so that we might be a people who get Jesus right. Right. 
There is no higher calling. There is nothing better, nothing more satisfying than knowing Jesus as He would be known from the Scriptures. So let us be that kind of people. Lord, I thank You that You have given us Your written Word so that we can know You. Lord, I... I bristle at the accusations that you are evil or wrong or wicked. And yet in my own life, I seem to express the same kind of wrong belief when I choose ungodliness over you. Would you forgive me of my false accusations? my non-committal heart. And instead, would you give me the greatest desire to know you from the Bible as humanly possible? I pray that if there are any here this morning, they would choose you. If they don't choose you, they're choosing to be against you and nobody who's against you will stand. Not even demonic forces. Lord, we all have that choice to make. Commit to you or not. Help us to see the reality and the truth of what you're saying. You are the power and kingdom of God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And I pray we would worship you according to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.